Hello and welcome to Clappercast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief, Jet Luke Sharp, and today I'm happy to be joined by Alina Fault. Hello. Cass and Tamar. Hello, hello. And Diego Andaluz. Hello. On today's episode, we're discussing the latest edition of the Fantasia Film Festival, described as one of the largest and most outstanding genre film festivals in North America. So we're going to split this uh, podcast up into three different sections, which is short film, documentary, and then it's feature narrative film. Uh, so let's start with the short film. So I haven't seen any of these short films, but I'll let Diego begin. And Carson and Lena, if you want to jump in at any time, feel free. So I saw quite a few interesting little shorts that really caught my attention. None more so than I'd say Skywatch, Night Shifts, and You Wouldn't Understand. All three are very unique ones that I think you can really only catch at the festival. So Night Shifts was actually directed by Finn Wolfhard. And I believe he made it with an Indiegogo campaign a couple of months ago. And it's very short. It's only about three minutes. But not to spoil anything, it's super clever. And it's really witty, kind of what you would expect from Finn Wolfhard. And I am really excited to see kind of what comes next from him, because I do feel like he could become a very comedic but grounded voice in independent cinema in a couple of years. You Wouldn't Understand is also very unique and quirky. It's kind of a sci-fi time loop narrative, but it's not like a serious or grounded, like a primer. It's much more comedic and irreverent. And it has some twists that I would want to see explored in a feature or a series down the road. But one that is already going to be explored in a series is Skywatch, which was directed by Colin Levy. And it's actually being turned into a series, which was announced by the director just a couple of weeks ago on Twitter. And it's very much a proof of concept short, but it has a super high budget and an incredible production value. And it's actually on YouTube already. So I definitely advise you guys to all check it out after this podcast because it's well worth the watch. And I'm very interested to see where they kind of take that concept. And in fact, it actually has Jude Law in a cameo. That's also a very interesting story as well, which I believe was actually told on their YouTube channel, kind of how they went and got Jude Law on such a small independent project. Anyways, Alina, what have you checked out about the short Sim Fantasia? One of the first ones I watched was called Doppelbanger, and that's one that's also being turned into a series. The series is going to be called Autumn Rain. It's by uh, Sophie and Khan. So it's all done in black and white. And so it's like retro, but sci-fi, which I really liked that juxtaposition. So humans created these like robot, like robots that like look like themselves. Like, so you like your doppelganger as like a robot and they're called doppelsins. And then, so they go to work for you. So the main character, his name is George. And then his robot is called George too. So George too goes to work in George's place and George stays home and like writes literature and stuff. So the film basically talks about how there's like a lack of human connection in a technological world because George never leaves his house because George too does everything for him. And he also, there, there's just like a lot of like intricacies to it. Like some of the robots are like illegally programmed to um, become like sex workers and all these things. And so they start to get like in trouble by the end of the short film. And what I really liked about it is it still feels like everything could be contained into the short film, but there's, the possibility for it to be like a series because I don't really like it when like short films that are supposed to be like proof of concept 
aren't like in their own world because what if it doesn't become a series like I, it should just be contained so that's what I liked about that one and then the other one I watched that I enjoyed was called don't text back and it was done by a lesbian couple they've directed and wrote it I think their names were Kay Adelaide and Marielle Sharp it was kind of like a witchy little thing so this girl she has like a necklace that like one of her tinder dates gave her and every time she like doesn't text him back the necklace like chokes her so she goes to this girl named jaren or i think jaren it's like jaren's like karen with a k with a j and jaren is like a witch energy healer kind of girl who's also queer uh, and then they have to like work together to figure out how to get the necklace off. So it's like a really funny like commentary on like the patriarchy and how women feel obligated to keep talking to like useless and shitty men because they feel like there's like not anything better out there because Tinder and all those ADFs just kind of like ruined everything. It was just, it was really funny. So I don't know like where you can find it, but like when it does come out, you guys should like try and search it out. And then the last thing I watched for short films was this program called Blocky Coney. And it was like a collection of 17 short films by First Nations filmmakers. I think the Blocky Coney comes out of like Quebec. And so whoever like runs that, like picked the collection of films they already had. And some were like experimental, some talked about like indigenous history and it was, really interesting and cool to support that because a lot of the times indigenous filmmakers don't have that opportunity so it's to like get their like ideas and films out there so it's cool that that organization is doing that and they got a chance to show their stuff at Fantasia. So unfortunately with the focus on just watching as many feature films as I could I really only caught two short films this year at Fantasia um, both of which Diego mentioned Night Shifts by Finn Wolfhart reminded me a lot of Colors by Brooklyn Prince, which was a short film by that young actress, to where they're both like very short, very inoffensive films, both, you know, very enjoyable. Uh, both actors actually served as not only the directors, but also the writers. I think this, especially from uh, from Finn Wolfhard, really proves that he can write and he can have interesting ideas. Um, I don't think either directorial outing was like, incredible per se but it was perfectly competent and perfectly you know sad it satisfied what a three minute short film really should be uh, and then the other one i saw was Skywatch, which yeah i agree this was a perfectly solid little like science fiction short film the production elements were really impressive like genuinely impressive for what this was i like the concept i like the world more than how they actually explore it i think how they actually go about kind of trying to show the like dangers and it kind of has a black mirror feel where you're put into the science fiction world and then tries to show like oh it's actually not that good and shit's going down i think the catalyst for that was a little bit weaker and if they go into a full series i definitely hope that they do something a little bit more interesting with it um, but the world itself was really interesting and like i said when it comes to visual effects for a small short film really like genuinely impressive well, let's move on now from short films to documentary, and I'll, I'll suppose I'll start this one. Again, with more sort of a, a narrative feature film focus, documentary was sort of on the sideline for me this year, uh, Fantasia, but that's not to say that I didn't get to see uh, some, uh, some, some good work. I mean, the first one I'll start with 
uh, well, my only one, to be honest, is a documentary of an Evil Dead origin, which is by, I believe, Stephen Villeneuve. But I, again, uh, I, I don't really want to pronounce that incorrect, but I, I believe it's pronounced Stephen Villeneuve. It's Hail to the uh, Deadites, which is a, a, a term that uh, Evil Dead fans call themselves. Um, I'm, a, I'm a, a sort of a, I don't want to say I'm a diehard fan of, of Evil Dead. I appreciate, I like the, the uh, sort of Fidel Alvarez uh, reboot, remake slash sequel. Um, in I believe it was like what, 2013 with Jane Le- uh, Levy. Um, I, I, I like the Sam Raimi trilogy. I, I think, believe it or not, I'm a fan of uh, Army of Darkness before Evil Dead 2 or, or the Evil Dead. Although, just as a, a, a you know, as a film fan, I, I definitely must appreciate what Sam Raimi did with the uh, the first film. But this documentary actually looks at sort of the fan base behind that. And, um, weirdly enough, it's not really a film that centers itself on Evil Dead per se. Um, granted, it is a big element to the film, but it looks more at the idea of um, fan service and fan demand and, and how film after like 25, 35 years ingrains itself on a different culture, sort of all the multifaceted um, nuances to that and how it evolves in, in the time. So it's, it's a very, very, as I said, not to use the term, but it's a very multifaceted documentary. There's a lot to like here. It's a very, it's, it's a, I think to begin with, like I said in my in my, my review on, on the website, it just burns with passion. You can just tell from the, the first frame to the last, it's a, it's a documentary that really, really loves its subject matter. And um, Villeneuve does a really good job of, 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 of touching on a whole host of themes and elements to this film. But one that sort of found me to be on the, the, the back burner, on the back foot per se, is that there's something, and I don't think the film does this purposefully. I don't think it's subconscious. I think this is something that comes out of this experiment of a documentary. Is that it has a very interesting conversation to say about what fans can do within this culture and society of film and television now. I mean, Bruce Campbell quite clearly states in the in the film. I think this may be a few months before its cancellation, but he says that you know the fans wanted more, so we went and we made more if they keep on asking and demanding more we'll keep on making more and that's in reference to ash vs the evil dead on fx which is, i believe is now cancelled but it's just an interesting sort of eye-opening uh, thing to behold you know we're in this medium now where um you, you know you've got diehard dc fans begging um, warner brothers for this elusive snyder cut and you know you've had multiple industry professionals say it doesn't exist and then all, all of a sudden hbo max is now producing a four-part miniseries on the Snyder Cut, and then you have uh, what we just found out uh, near two days ago, Coppola going back to re-edit The Godfather Part 3. It's an interesting world we live in. I think Stephen Villeneuve does a really interesting job of sort of highlighting that factor of, uh, of, of what the fans can demand now. You know, they are the judge, jury, and executioner of, of cinema, which, you know, 20, 15 years ago, when The Evil Dead first came out, you didn't even have fans. So to know now that these people are demanding this very niche very d- difficult horror film to sort of stand, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and to know now that there's a possibility of it constantly evolving in the times um, of what these people see fit. It's a very interesting sort of uh, thing to behold, but uh, documentary-wise, that is the only thing I watched um, at Fantasy of the Ship, but it's definitely one I would, I would most definitely recommend on a multifaceted level, not just as an Evil Dead fan. If you are, perfect, but if not, I think you'll enjoy it nonetheless.
So 2020 has been an absolutely incredible year for documentaries. If you listen to the podcast, you know I've tried to champion multiple of them. And I ended up seeing six documentaries at Fantasia Fest, most of which are really, really solid. I'm not going to bore you with all the details, um, but Class Action Park is currently available on HBO Max. If you're interested in the subject material, don't just be like, oh, I watched a YouTube 10-minute documentary on the subject matter, so I don't need to watch the film. It is legitimately engaging and adds new perspectives to the story you might already know the prophet and the space aliens was a legitimately interesting look at this religion it's a look at the real religion which normally when you look at it most media that looks at this religion kind of use it as a cult and focuses on various elements of it such as back in 2001 they said that they openly like cloned a person and they just didn't provide any proof but like all the headlines on a global scale were like oh yeah they cloned a person so most documentaries will focus on that this is instead doesn't focus on that and instead just gives a very genuine perspective on their beliefs of love um, and it doesn't necessarily try to like sell you on this religion, but just do a better job at capturing what they truly believe in and how they truly act. But the main one that really impressed me was Feels Good Man. This is a look at the history of the Peppa the Frog meme on the internet and where that sounds like it's not going to be that engaging. This is a shockingly dark and captivating look at internet culture and how it plays a role in politics and what it means and the alt-right and how they kind of claimed Pepe the Frog and the creator's journey to reclaim Pepe the Frog from them. It's a legitimately fantastic, not just documentary, but film. It's currently in my top four of the year when it comes to all of film. It is really, really incredible. I cannot express enough, especially in this time right now that we're dealing with politically. And when the, the, this documentary translates very well to larger conversations um, when it comes to the political sphere. The documentary I'm going to end on for now is You Cannot Kill David Arquette. Um, I know Alina has a lot to say here, so I'm just going to be very brief. Really like this documentary. It's about David Arquette trying to go back into the wrestling industry, his ups and downs. And I found this to just be a very genuine and very entertaining, but also very heart. It's a film with a lot of heart, a lot of depth, um, and a lot of just genuine emotion. But I know Alina has much more to say, so I'll pass it over to her. You guys know that like Keanu Reeves meme when he's like going off the, oh, I love cinema. That's me with wrestling. Um, especially like between the ages of like 11 to 15, I watched like Raw and SmackDown like every single week. And I like knew, I was like a little wrestling historian. I watched like all the back like dvds and like i knew everything so i remember when i first found out about the wcw david arquette situation i was like shook because everybody knows well every single professional wrestling fan knows like how integral respect is in the business so like if you don't know what happened in like 2001 w uh david arquette went on um an episode of Nitro from WCW to promote his uh, wrestling related movie called Ready to Rumble <clears throat> and he was on for a couple weeks and eventually he won the World Heavyweight Championship and that basically like ruined his career and like totally ostracized him from the wrestling world because all of these like diehard fans that know how hard like wrestlers work to even get into the business, let alone become champion. And then this like Hollywood actor rolls up and wins the title. It was just like an embarrassment and slap into the face to like everybody from like Ric Flair to Macho Man to Hulk Hogan. Like everybody was furious. And 
the thing about the documentary that I found so interesting is they review lots of wrestling fans and even like 20 years later people are still mad at him they the documentary is David Arquette trying to get back on the good sides of like wrestling fans and he does that by going to the independent scene so over the last couple years the independent wrestling scene has like really really skyrocketed because a lot of people like have been like pretty disillusioned by like WWE and like the paths they're taking so they're focusing more on like Ring of Honor and AEW and all their um all their like more local promotions like I follow quite a few like indie wrestlers on Twitter just because I I, I don't like keep up with it as much as I did when I was like a preteen but I still like I'm pretty like plugged into the world and I had no idea that David Arquette was doing this so I really enjoyed the documentary he basically he goes through he basically he pays his dues in like a way that a proper wrestler should and the documentary is literally just like a love letter to wrestling fans like begging us for like his forgiveness and I think he really succeeds like he did like such a good job like paying like going to like backyard wrestlings and getting like the shit beat out of him with like steel chairs and like lights and all these things like he even like gets like stabbed in the neck and almost dies and he still like finished the match like he you could the amount of like heart and soul David Arquette like put into like his professional wrestling journey I think it's time that wrestling fans forgive him like it was just such a well done documentary because he just he doesn't hide anything and I was just really 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 impressed it's I think it's it's one of my favorite films of the year and I know I'm biased because I I loved wrestling but I just it was so well done and I think like David Arquette is really like brave for like all that he went through because wrestling is fucking hard it's so fucking hard so I actually only watched one documentary at this festival which was actually probably one of my favorite films of the festival overall, which was Justin McConnell's Clapboard Jungle. It's basically tells his story about how he's trying to get his own genre films made. And it gives a pretty detailed account about each step in the production process from just coming up with the ideas, to then trying to sell the film and find funding. And then finally seeming like, while some films are moving forward, others seem unlikely but are still alive and then others are just canceled or dead in the water and it actually is very very well made he was able to get some pretty comprehensive interviews with people like guillermo del toro paul schrader and george romero and just many many more and it just all comes together into a very cohesive film that i'd say is essential for anyone who even is thinking about pursuing filmmaking because even though it does have a focus on kind of genre films it is it does present very good advice for just anyone who's into film and filmmaking in general i also did hear that apparently they're planning on taking those interviews and making kind of a series which is every episode is just a separate interview with one of those people so i'm very excited to see that as well but overall if you're looking for a guide to filmmaking if you have no clue if you think you're almost there but still have a couple things that you're not sure about this is definitely one to be checked out I don't think it's actually available anymore, but it should be out pretty soon. I think it might hit a couple more festivals, but it should be, it should have a wide release soon. So when it does, definitely check it out if you're even remotely interested in pursuing a career in filmmaking. 
Not to sound like a broken record, but I do agree a lot with you, Diego. One of my favorite parts of Clapboard Jungle is just how comprehensive the film is. It is well aware that there's no one path in the filmmaking industry, which is why it's so genius to put this personal story of Justin McConnell trying to get these films made and putting those in between these interviews with filmmakers from all walks of life. You have Oscar winners who are out there trying to make, you know, these big films. And then you also have tiny little horror directors who literally are there just making like bad movies that they are know are that they know are bad movies, but they just enjoy the process of going out with friends and making these really shitty horror films. It's a movie that doesn't try to say, oh, you need to do this. You need to do this. It brings you behind closed doors into like can at all these festivals um, and what those truly mean for smaller filmmakers and what the actual struggles and emotional roller coaster of the experience is but it does it in such a comprehensive and genuine matter that no matter what your goal is as a filmmaker I think this is going to be a really really fascinating documentary and even if you're not a filmmaker even if you're just someone who watches film this is going to give you a new respect for independent film this is the first movie I saw of the festival and it perfectly set the mindset for the rest of the entire festival um really really wonderful film well moving on from documentary let's talk about narrative film um i'll probably just start off this one uh, i'm going to choose a few and then i'm going to come back to a few others after everyone else has spoken just purely because i don't want to sort of take it over anyone but there's a, there's a few that have surprised me this year because usually that with the, this film festival there's been a, a lot on offer and, and i mean a hell of a lot of uh, genre filmmaking. Um, I just want to sort of pick a pick a few, and then I'll then I'll go from there. The first one, because I know that a few people have seen it in here, and it'd be nice to have a chat about, is um, the the one film where we're slightly sort of anticipating, not because of the film itself, but because of one person who was in it, was Private Chat with Julia Fox. Now, if anyone knows the name of Julia Fox, it's obviously uh, the Safety Brothers Uncut Gems. Which she she came to a massive cult status within that film and as a, a sort of being relatively quiet since then only a few few uh, pieces here and there um she's in this p- film with a, with an actor called peter vack and it's a film about well weirdly enough it's it, it's a film that i don't think was made for it but i think it feels wonderfully um perfect to release in this sort of current um, era in, the, in this society now with, with lockdown it's a, it's a uh, set in new york peter, peter vack plays this gambler where there's a sort of an inkling of that he may be addicted to to uh, losing money but he has this fetish of cam girls about three or four of them he likes to sort of go on there and he, that, that's where he, he finds his sort of sexual needs uh, to, to be met with uh, a lot of domination and um, verbal as well and, and i think there's a lot of self-infliction uh, physical there as well that, that, that i think he he, he uh he gravitates towards um one in particular called uh, Scarlet, played by Julia Fox, he has this relationship with that sort of grows throughout the film. It's it's an interesting one because on the surface, just it sounds like uh, this very strange, I don't know, dynamical relationship. But overall, it's actually quite a very warming, often incredibly dark look at mental health, addiction, female empowerment, sex objects. There's a lot here. I mean. Peter Vack, uh, I've never, I've never seen in anything before. Here, I think he's marvelous as, uh, as a, as a character called Jack. But Julia Fox as a, as Scarlet is, is, um, is, a, is astonishing. I mean, she is, if not one of the best alternate movie icons that could be in some time. And I know that sounds like a very strange sort of hyperbolic statement too. But she has got it all. She has the sex appeal, but she has the talent. Like she, she, she enrobes this the, the viewer 
not once through her body, but generally just how she, well, it's weird because the way to describe the film is that it's a relationship set through a computer screen. But the way in which they do it is that they spend a lot of time with Peter Vack in his room. And it's almost like a gateway that you see Scarlet through this tiny um, monitor. And it's, 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 it's very well done in how Ben Hosey, who's a director of this, sort of implements this relationship to be so intimate, but so authentic or organic. You feel their, their, this fire sort of between them fuel up. There's, an, there's some very interesting conversation to have, but like I said about Julia Fox is the fact that she has, again, not only this sex appeal, which I think is like magnificent, you don't really see it often because I think this industry's changed a little bit. And I know that sounds misogynistic, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is that like, she has this appeal where she doesn't have to even sort of emote this talent. She can just sit there and you're just there straight away that you're just ingrained in, in just wanting to know about a character. She hasn't got a lot to do in this film. And that's what I'm trying to say is that she just gravitates this audience to the bottom of her feet without doing anything. And I don't think that, again, that's what I'm trying to say is that it's not through her raw sex appeal. She has this charisma and this, I don't know how to describe it because it's very rare you actually have this, but she just has this sort of pull where I don't know if it's, I mean, she's, she's quite good in, in gems as well, but here it's just something very different. And I don't know if that's intimacy of the relationship she has with Jack or it's just how her talent and how her body language, she just is so inviting. I mean, her, how she sort of has this dialogue in the film. She, she again, it's difficult to not give anything away, but she, domi- she basically dominates Vax's character in more ways than one. She how the film develops, it goes, it goes down a, a, a territory I don't really want to spoil, but you can tell throughout the film that you get enamoured with this character and it becomes not only a conscious thing by the film with its narrative, but it also then you realise that the character by Julia Fox, this is not something particularly from the, uh, the actress herself, it's the characters trying to do it. So it works on a really multifaceted, dynamic way. It's, it's incredibly well done. It feels like a Safdie Brothers film. It does have, um, and I forget his name in here, but my, my girlfriend made, made sure I don't have to say it. Um, it does have Buddy Duress, who was also in the Safdie Brothers' Good Time. It, it, he's in a sort of bit part, third parter. And again, moving on from him, it's a film that is only about 80 minutes long. It has this like such empowering um, thing about you know female sex workers as, as well as that there's a conversation to be had. And I think a lot of people are quite frightened to have it, but it, the film wants to touch upon is that, is this Scarlett's decision to do this or is there other reasons? And it's a strange one because the film never sort of overly states otherwise if it's, if it's one or the other. I mean, throughout the film, it's quite clear of one, but when we get to the ending, it's, it's sort of something else is revealed to maybe that Julia Fox's character does what she does for, for this reason. Then there's another something that happens, but I'll, I'll leave that for anyone to watch. Um, but I was just going to say, it's a film that it's, it's very minute. It's 80 minutes. It's very intimate. It's wonderfully acted. It's wonderfully formed. It's wonderfully short. It is a little bit too long for 80 minutes. There's sort of scenes here that prolong the inevitable um, scenes that feel that it's building worlds and a character, but weirdly enough, just get in the way of, of, of this, this, this duo. Um, there is one thing I want to touch upon, but I obviously I don't want to sort of say the wrong things here, so I'm going to be quite uh, clear. I'll say it. The fil- how this film shoots sex is very, very interesting. 
because it's probably the most authentic, um, organic, and often they're not quite, I don't want to say it's jarring because that's the wrong word, but it's intimate to a point where it feels slightly uncomfortable because it is so authentic. Anyone who's seen this film will understand what I mean, but it just generally feels like you're watching two people interact over cam work. So it's just a very, very, very difficult film to watch in the fact that it just sometimes can feel a little bit too much. Overwhelming is probably the word, but nonetheless, I cannot say how much of a star Julia Fox is. Um, this is a film, I, I said this in my review as well, and again, I feel like I'm this Julia Fox stand, but I think it's once you see an actress of this quality or, or an actor of this quality, I think we do need to speak about it because I think she's terrific in this film. I just hope that this isn't taken on by Julia Fox stands on Twitter, on Reddit, so on and so forth, because there's a lot of nudity in this film and how the actress does that within the film is quite empowering and it's quite intimate and it's very, very, very an honest and open discussion of the body. And I just hope that this isn't sort of appropriate in a way where it's like, wow, Julia Fox, she's naked, or Julia Fox, nude, or Julia Fox, like on Twitter when we see these stan accounts. I just hope that this isn't a performance. And I know Julia Fox herself has done um, art shows like that. And I think she's an actress and a, and a a woman who's very open with her body and her sexuality. And I think that's something to commend, but I think the work here is so much, or like the art piece itself, it just, there's a lot of like sort of dynamic, it's it's very layered I'll say. And I think that I just hope that it isn't taken on by these people who, 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 just purely want to exploit her body and not look at the talent behind it, look at the reasons behind it, looking at the the reason why she crafts the character in the way she does. Uh, but all in all, Ben Hose, most definitely one to watch. Peter Vack looks like he might be something as well. Julia Fox is is is, is stunning in this film. Uh, her talent can speak uh, far more um, in the film than I can, and I feel like I've butchered it all. But overall, that's that's one film um, I generally was really hoping for, and it and it really really took me by surprise another film that i want to talk about very quickly and it's 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 the most sort of jarring difference is a film called yumi by lars um dimonoso i believe it's pronounced um this is a film and weirdly enough these would make a very strange double bill but this is uh set i believe in eastern europe about a woman who's going into plastic surgery to have a breast reduction and she's there with her boyfriend and she goes there with her mother and her mother's also going there to get some touch-ups and throughout the film, there's this very on-the-nose overcompensation of the film having to mention and also visualise that this woman has big breasts. Now, for me personally, that's a massive red flag. And I'm just, I, 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 the, the, the first 10 minutes or so, I was just thinking that this was going to be something where it would just, it wouldn't have any subtlety. And it was just going for this unabashedly brash and, and, and um, tone-deaf feature. Well, catch me by surprise because 25 minutes into this film there is a zombie um apocalypse that happens and this these four or five people are stuck in a plastic surgery in the middle of eastern europe which i believe is in russia i I could be wrong and they have to fight to fight for survival now don't forget about the comments about this woman having a breast reduction because it's weirdly enough it's actually a theme that is quite suitable throughout the film where the director and the actress as well touch upon you know female empowerment a lot of people in this film um especially the men try to take charge even though the primary doctor uh, at the actual hospital is a woman and uh, this this woman as well 
is, is throughout there, they all get put to one side. And as the film progresses, it's quite clear who's meant to take lead and who's, who's there to sort of be empowered about their situation. It's a very interesting film because it works on, on, a, on a really wonderful level of, it's a horror film first and foremost, but there's also, a, a, it's a great female lead. It's a good story about being happy with your body, being, being um, understanding that, you know, you can change things if you want to, and there's nothing wrong with that, but be comfortable in your own skin. And, and then to be put into a, a film <laughs> that likes to talk about skin, about, you know, you know, zombie flesh eaters, it, it's, it's a good sort of little balance. I did describe it in my, my review. It's almost like, you know, an Edgar Wright European comedy. And I think maybe that's sort of a detriment to how good this film is. Um, it is very funny. It is action packed. There is a sequence where a man's penis is frozen off. It is a very strange uh, thing to watch. But overall, again, another film, which I think was my first one, which happened to be one of the uh, first films reviewed at the actual festival. And I know Carson's seen it. Maybe Carson may have something else to say than I have. But I was really pleasantly surprised to see what direction it went into. And before long, it was very clear that the man behind this camera is the most nihilistic bastard I've ever seen. Because if you... Well, I won't ruin anything, but to think that you're having a happy ending in these type of films, you may be sorely mistaken because how this film develops and ends is equally as brutal as it is, um, is, is quite astonishing. But if Carson, if you want to just uh, make a few comments on it, I don't know how long ago you saw it, but you just want to take over now, you can do it, right? Yeah, no, actually, I've seen both Private Chat and Yummy, and I find it funny that you said that they'd be a really good double feature, because I didn't even think of that. I was thinking of pairing Private Chat with Life Untitled, which is another really beautiful film I saw at the festival. Um, I agree. I think both films, one thing that stands out with each of them is just how unique they feel. There isn't really another film I can think of that fully captures the feeling of either film. Yummy, like you mentioned, is this zombie horror film, and it's extremely fun in that sense, but at the same time, it's making this bigger statement about female not just sexuality but how people view view the female body and like there is depth there that really helps it stand out and the setting itself just feels unique um and with private chat the best way i can describe it is shame meets uncut gems but like that's not even really fully capturing how unique it feels there's nothing like that movie and like you said julie fox is just incredible i mean every actor in that film is incredible and the style overall, I do think the directing has a little bit to go before it gets to safety levels, you know, level of craft. But really, overall, both films are wonderful. And I think both films highlight one of the best parts I found of Fantasia Festival is since it wasn't a festival, like the conversation wasn't dominated by these couple main big films. It really allowed a lot of discovery, a discovery of younger actors and actors who haven't necessarily been in the mainstream even though I don't think the actors of Yummy or um, Private Chat were making their directorial debuts, I know plenty were. Um, and even if it wasn't their debuts, these are two actors who haven't made a lot of films. They're new and exciting voices. And one of the major films to stand out was Sanzaru, which is another film with um, a director making their, you know, an early kind of breakout role. Their name was uh, Zaya Magnus. And that film is haunting. I think the directorial style in that film is really, really incredible. Um, and where the story, I, it's hard to talk about the story simply because it is a film sh like clouded with mystery and you really don't know what is happening until later on in the film. It is completely engaging. And when you talk about ensembles, I think one of the biggest crimes of like, if you talk about like the best ensembles of the year 
is the fact that most of the time it's dominated by films that have these mainstream actors. This is a film where every actor is just giving it their all and is fully just commanding attention with their roles. I truly think this is one of the best ensembles of the year so far. And that was just, again, just like when you talk about the festival in general, one of the greatest discoveries. And to think that all of these directors are someone a month ago, I had no idea who they were. And now they're on my radar of people and voices to watch. It's really, really exciting. I'm just going to go really quickly because I know you just mentioned Life Untitled. Um, That's a film I didn't see at Fantasia. However, I did see it a few months ago. And I think it is a film that we should mention because I know I actually interviewed... um, Kana Yamada. So I actually interviewed um, Kana Yamada for the website a few months ago. This is a film, which I talk about that hit me with surprise. This is actually a directorial debut by Yamada. Now, she comes back from a theatre background. She was in the music industry. She was a production, and I believe she was a production assistant, or if I, if it quite, I can't remember. I believe she was in the music industry um, behind the scenes, and she decided to stop that career and go and make a feature film. This is a result of that. Now, as directorial debuts go, this is outstanding. The level of nuance, just affection, passion, but I comment on society, specifically Japanese women in this, in this, in this sex worker industry and to have the conversation, it's very eye-opening. I spoke to her in depth about how she felt about that. And she, she said in, in the interview, that it, was a, it was a very tough task. But everyone she spoke to um, was always like, so wonderfully upbeat. And, and it was a profession that they, didn't, they, they weren't frowned upon. It's a massive, massive industry in Japan. And, and, and in, in Western society, I, I spoke about the difference, how in, you know, in, in the West, it's, it's quite shamed upon um, by, by a lot of people who think it's nothing, it's, you know, exploitation and, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's not legal. Whereas in, in, in Japan, um, it is legal, but I think only to certain degrees. I think you can only do uh, prostitution, uh, I believe, in, uh, I, I don't know if it's in a hotel or household, but it can't be anywhere else, which I think it's not regulated per se, but to a certain degree it is. But, um, but no, this was outstanding, truly outstanding. Like the, the ways that she, she frames this, the ways that she's, that she cast this for a first-time director. She is stunning in this. The feature is stunning, and I, I, it's difficult because I, I, I want to sort of go in depth about it. But it's a film that it's it's very dark. It is very dark at times. It's it's often very bleak, but it does have this uplifting tilt to it. This, this that sort of silver lining of pros, prosperity and and having a prospect and and working and 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 understanding that. You know, you're doing something because A, you like it, or B, B, you're having to do it for another reason. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's unfortunate. That's that's how life goes for a lot of people. And um, she spoke at length uh, in the interview about how it was difficult to cast these women because she wanted really strong women who were really dynamic. And, and again, not to use a word, but layered and multifaceted. And I think, as I said, as directorial debuts go, I think this is, this is outstanding. Most definitely one to watch. I have a very sort of slight... Uh, well, I don't have a slight. I have a really big feeling that y- y- Yamada will be someone we will talk about in decades. I really do. I think she's most definitely someone who has not got just eons of talent. But it's just the way that she shoots this. It's like she's been behind the camera for like a decade already. And that to me is that there's just some passion hidden there. There's just a, a level of craft that's just burning to get out. So it'll be interesting to see where Yamada goes from this. It really will be. I'm, I'm very excited for it. So referring back to Carson, one of the ones that I saw that 
might just be my favorite film of the festival and I'm definitely in my top five of the year so far is Zanzaru. I mean, Carson talked a lot about it already, but I just have to add, for those of you who haven't seen it or don't know anything about it, I could best describe it as Hereditary meets Uncle Boonmi, which won the, the Palme d'Or at Cannes, I believe. It's a very strange film. It's a very niche film. It does have some of, it does have a little bit of an experimental nature, but it does have some aspects that are kind of mainstream. So in some ways, it's not like it's completely inaccessible to general audiences. It is a hard watch, but it's a very, very rewarding one. And you'll definitely kind of need to think about it for a little bit and kind of just see what's going on. Because it does have, it does have an artistic flair, but it also has a very supernatural nature. And the way in which they portray some of the creatures or some of the things going on behind the scenes are very inventive and unique. And I haven't really seen them portrayed in that way before. So for someone looking for a film that is accessible, but is still kind of out there and will challenge you, Zanzaru is definitely one to check out. One that I also saw that I'd say was in the same vein in terms of having some mainstream aspects to it, but also being one that is very challenging is survival skills. This is Quinn Armstrong's directorial debut. And even though the performances are incredible, the highlight is just the way in which he kind of puts together this visual VHS 80s aesthetic to kind of portray a police training video as the, the main character actually kind of, Jim, I believe is his name, goes through a sense of starting with a bunch, starting very illusioned about what he can achieve as a police officer. And then very topical today, he kind of travels that road of disillusionment until by the end, he's a very, very broken man and a man who's kind of just disconnected from reality. So if you're looking for another one of those films, that's definitely one to check out as well. So going back to what Diego said about Sanzaru, I'm one of those people who like doesn't seek out horror movies because I just like, I don't want to see ghosts. I don't believe in them, but I also kind of do. I just, I don't want to. Um, like I remember I saw It Follows like in high school. I got like conned into it with a bunch of my friends and I like still look behind me because like that movie scared me so much. But so, but with Sanzaru, I wanted to watch it because I thought it was interesting that it was like mixing American Gothic with Filipino culture. So I wanted to see how that works. So I was like, okay, I'll take one for the team and watch it. And I was actually pretty impressed for the most part. Like it's more of like a haunting and eerie movie rather than something that's like deliberately trying to like jump scare you. So I could handle it. And I, I liked that it was like a slow burn, but I don't know. I didn't like the ending of the movie. I felt like it like wrapped up too quickly and there was like certain character choices and like relationships that like I don't want to fully get into because I don't want to ruin the movie I just I kind of see where they're coming from because it's supposed to be like mixing like the American and Filipino thing but I didn't like the way the ending went about it so I feel like I was happy with like the first two thirds and then it like dropped off for me I'm going to come in the same sort of angle that Alina here. I think Sanzaro is a film that sort of mixes an identity with, with genre, this time Filipino, which I think is very refreshing. And I think Mag- Magnus does a really good job with, with that direction. I just think it's a, it's a film that's going to sort of be very difficult for an audience um, and it's going to rest on that final reveal. It's a very slow, thought-provoking, within its contextual self, film that, that is a, it's very, it's a, it's a brooding film, let's say. And I think that 
it's just going to depend on how many people can sort of stick that brooding mentality until that something happens per se. And I know that's sort of a, a very naive and ignorant thing to say about this film, but it is a very difficult film to sit down and feel that you're watching and getting character from because it's very limited moments of characters. There's a very limited amount of, of material that Magnus allows in the film uh, in order for the film to brew in this enigmatic, um, mysterious nature. And like I said, I think filmmaking wise, I think it, it shows the intimacy of this building and the intimacy of these characters and the reflection of society very, very well, especially culture, which I think it highlights. Nevertheless, I still think that it's a film that's going to really struggle with keeping people after a certain amount of time, because I, I felt personally, there's a, there's a slight, there's a, I'm not going to say it's a reveal, but there is, let's say it is, I'll just contradict myself, but you know, here we are. Let's just say there is a reveal in its third act. And to be honest, I felt it was so out of out of the blue and um, almost pedantic to throw something in there. I was sort of slightly worried of where they were going to take it. But in the same breath, I was slightly like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Okay. And I felt that that mixed response to the material was a feeling I had throughout the film. And then the film just doesn't want to take it that area. And then there's this very ambitious moment where the film is including a ghost story, which I felt works. But again i don't think it's conveyed in the way that the film wants it to do I, again it, it may be a film where you can take what you want from it don't get me wrong for me there just isn't enough in here to be sort of enamored with it all but nevertheless i do think it's an effective film and it has a lot of attributes that are, that are positive but i think it's a very slow a very cold and brooding film that's going to be very difficult for audiences other than art house festival goers to sort of really get and i understand that you know you think the, the comparisons to hereditary but i just don't know i think there's a lot more to hereditary i think that's why it works there's a lot less here and it's a conscious decision i get that is that is it because there's a restraint on budget and there's also a restraint on character but there's a lot more that could be said here and maybe it's the Alfred Hitchcock ways that, you know, not well the Spielberg way as well where not showing something is a better thought provoking and psychological element to have in your film but to be honest it was just for me it was not a horror I sort of gravitate towards like Alina said which is a shame because I think there's there's definitely something there to really enjoy but for me alas it just didn't it didn't hit which is a shame it really is I guess I'll quickly go back to Diego's point on survival skills just quickly, because that is a film that genuinely surprised me quite a bit. Uh, like you mentioned, it takes on the unique style of being basically a police training video, and it plays with that expectation, and they play with that idea in a lot of really, really unique and clever ways. It's one of those films that the editing and the overall like uh, tongue-in-cheek style it's either going to really work for you or it really is not going to work for you. But I think how it actually translates its messages of police and the fundamental issues within the system of police is shockingly relevant to today. And it just really worked out um, in the end. I think this was a really, really spectacular film. And I believe it was a directorial debut, which is extremely bold um, that they would make such a unique like film, not just with its statements, but just how they actually convey their narrative. Um, really, really impressive. Just to add on from, from what Carson said there about, you know, directorial debuts and impressive and ambitious films, especially from... Sanzaro, I think a nice follow-up there would be to talk about Amelia Moses's Bleed With Me. Now, I don't know how many people saw this in this chat, but I'll just start first, and then if you want to go after that, uh, that's fine. But this is a film that's very much like Sanzaro, takes a genre 
um, has its little comments to make about it, but lets the genre speak first. Very probably, we speak about double bills. This is a double bill with Sanzara. Uh, Sanzara, I think, um, I don't know, I think it's only 100 minutes. This is only 73 minutes. It's very short. It feels a lot longer, but contextually so, so no one get worried. But what it basically starts, it starts uh, a couple and their friend who go up to a cabin in the middle of the winter and then get stuck, get isolated. Sounds very simple. Sounds like a cabin fever sort of horror. But all of a sudden, and I just want to sort of put, throw a trigger warning out there. I'm going to do that twice today because there's another film I want to talk about maybe a bit later that also um, needs to be warned. But this is a very bigger trigger warning. Um, and I just, just to touch on that very, very quickly, is that the woman uh, who's not the couple, the, the, other, the other woman who's, who's with this couple, keeps on waking up with cuts to her arm. And these, these are not scratches. These are not anything like, or, you know, shards of glass. These are the, the very direct cuts off a, off a very sharp object, like a knife. And all of a sudden, this cat starts happening every night and it starts to be, uh, start to be more and more on this woman's arm. And uh, this, this woman in question is led to believe that her friend and this couple are stealing her blood. Now, obviously, that sounds like there's been a, a, a major plot twist there. How the film implements it is really interesting because it sort of conveys this, this, this conversation on mental illness. Now, mental illness being an invisible illness is something that, that the society has had an issue with um, acknowledging and, and sort of understanding for, for decades and decades. And we're getting there, we really are. But this film does a really good job of sort of exploring that notion about friends and family and, and people believing people who are, who are chronically ill or people who have mental illness. And this, this film of how, how it showcases is very, very interesting because it's trying to blend the eye, sort of the comments on self-harm through a, through a lens of horror. Now, horror has had this notion for the last few, de- last decade or so where they're starting to sort of reflect society and we start to talk about mental health and stuff like that. So you've got uh, BPD in Split, which I think is a very controversial thing that Shyamalan's got away with, but I think it's very controversial nonetheless. Self-harm is also in that film. We're talking about, um, you know, a film a bit later that I'll, I'll get onto, but, you know, you've got like Relic of Dementia, you've got Depression in the Babadook. So there's a lot of stuff going on there with horror. And I think this is a film that's a very, very thin line between exploitation and, and an honest depiction of using it through the lens of horror. Now, People will disagree with that, and I think you cannot have an argument against that either way. I think if someone came to me and said, look, this is an exploitation of self-harm, I'd stand there and I'd say, I fully agree with you. In the same breath, I can see what Moses is trying to do this uh, to do here, and she is a director debut. And I just want to talk about the filmmaking person, and I'll get back to the plot, but this is a very, very cold, very, very calculated film to the extent of everything in the frame felt purposely, consciously crafted. The mise-en-scene, the production design, design here is outstanding. Everything is brown. Everything is mundane. There's this really cold, um, horrible look within the film, which is all lit, which feels, which I don't think it is, because it'd, be, it'd be very difficult, but it feels like everything is lit by natural light. And it has this really warm, touching moment in the film where you, you, you become less hostile to the environment and you become very warm and invited to this, what feels like this idyllic cabin but you're just plastered with this very mundane colour palette. And it just, there's like the oxymoronic relationship between comfortable and then feeling slightly jarred with your surroundings. And how the film does that is generally exceptional. But the film sort of continues and continues and continues on. And there's a lot, there's a lot of time throughout the film where this gets worse and worse for this character. And then she's having these 
hallucinate hallucinations or per se we don't really know and then uh, it, it becomes quite clear sort of towards its third act that the film wants to make a statement but it doesn't want to define what's fact or reality and it's one thing that throughout the film that, that, that Moses does extremely well where and I've, I've said this before about about Relic where I felt at like the maturity level in that genre wasn't quite there to understand that excessive nature didn't need to be there um, here, I think Moses, for 98% of the film, gets everything right. A really wonderful balance of knowing when to end, what to show, when not to show it, to be subtle, to be on the nose. It does get to that 98% mark, you know, and, and it, the film then goes for it, and then suddenly, as it, as it goes for it, relents. And it does leave you in this sort of jarring position of, wow, what, what? So is it real or is it not? And it, the film is always sort of second and guessing itself in a really, really, really interesting way. And then the film just has sort of nowhere to go, nowhere else to go. So they do a big, big moment and then then end in this really sort of downtrodden and and and, and really gritty, gritty finale. We'll just talk about uh, you know director debuts. It is outstanding, and it's definitely one that people should watch because it's made on a shoestring budget. Uh, it's a female uh, director director debut. It's something we definitely need to talk about. But I just wanted to talk about very quickly again. And I don't want to go down this very very dark path, but um, another film that I think deals with um, the idea of of mental health is uh, is Woman of the Photographs by Takeshi Kashida. Now again. Trigger warning, very similar feelings. We have a main character, Kai, I believe it is, uh, maybe mispronouncing that, who is a photographer by day and is a Photoshop expert by night. Um, You have a lot of people come into a shop, they want to be Photoshopped to look younger, blah, blah, blah. It's a very interesting comment um, about, you know, society and beauty standards. He then goes to uh, a, I believe, to a national park in Japan where he sees a model in the tree who falls and gashes her collarbone, really horrible wound, and he takes her in, and they have this sort of really sort of very strange relationship that just grows and grows. Kai doesn't speak throughout the whole film. He does have one monologue towards the end, and the film by Kushida does a really good job of, of, of having him bear witness to, to this model and have him react through his eyes, through his through a visual, through a visual physical performance, not verbal. It's a very tricky thing to do when you've got uh, a film about beauty and you've got no dialogue in it because it, it just rests on that, that visual element. And it's one thing I, get, I went into here being slightly optimistic about. However, uh, again, this is another film that touches upon uh, self-harm in a way that it's about beauty standards. And it's, an, it's a model who makes her money off her visual appetite um, of, 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 I believe it's mainly Instagram, but it's not Instagram, let's be honest. It's something like that. And she gets dropped by her agency, a model agency, and it's just about her not allowing this wound to open up and keep on making wounds that people can then uh, look on online and gravitate towards the clicks, and it gets clicked and clicked. And then she's coming to uh, Kai's character and then having these manipulators and then shown, and, and she's trying to sort of... It's, a, it's a, just an interesting sort of conversation on the film uh, discussing beauty standards and, and you know editing qualities and stuff like that but there's one thing that the film sort of touches upon and it's the uh, dedication and substance and I wouldn't say greed but dedication let's say of of these uh, of the ability what we can do with computers now and there's a sort of this bit part by a, by an elderly man and he comes into to this to this store where Kai is and you know wants these albums to be touched up 
um, and he brings one in one of his family and, and then he says oh look can you make me and my wife look younger in this picture and he does and he, he has to you know has to make a passport for her which he does makes her very younger and it's, it's all this like it feels like it's a third party just adding more conversations on, on onto Kai's depth and stuff like that and all of a sudden he comes in with a, uh, his, his daughter's picture. And he's a very, he's like an elder gentleman, he must be in his seventies, maybe late seventies. And he, this, this, this kid's only about nine, 10 or 11. And you, it starts to sort of realize that, well, there's a, there's not something quite right there. Cause you know, he's quite old and she's quite young. I don't know if there's anything there. And what I mean that I'm not inferring anything. I'm just saying like, there's just a big jarring age gap uh, and you never see this daughter, you never see this wife. And it's, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's revealed that, you know, this man's a very lonely man, let's say. Um, and this is this was his daughter who who perished, who died. I believe it's uh, I believe it's through cancer. And um, he asks him if if he can if he can age her to to how old she would be now. And Kai Kai does it, he, he, you know. And this man goes home, buys a big feast, and eats it. And and the, how the camera sort of swirls around in almost like a saw um, inspired ways. You know, you get like a, an editing of a room to a room. Obviously, it's three different settings put into one. It's really well shot, where this old man's just sat in this very cramped compartment of a, of, a, of his of his dining room, and his daughter there is just staring at him. And she's 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 a, the the daughter that he would have now. It's a very touching, very delicate, but but also intimate and, and small moment that just it's just gut punching to watch that you know Kai's doing this, not knowing why, but this 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 man is just forever grateful that. You know, I think it's implied that this man's, you know, that's maybe his final night and he wants to just be with the ones he loves who are not here anymore. Very touching. But it's a film that, again, wants to touch on these broader themes very, very well. Kai has a monologue at the end again. Very, very, very powerful. Um, a really, 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 really interesting film that talks, talks about these, uh, the, you know, the, the idea of beauty standards, especially in, in another country that's not the westernized world, which we see with the Kardashians get annihilated every other week. You know, you've got like Khloe Kardashian looking like three different people that, you know, we talk about black fishing now that happens a lot in, in LA. So it's just an interesting sort of dynamic to listen to, like, you know, but Japanese culture also uh, talk about these beauty standards in a way that's, that's, that's quite harsh and also refreshing and, and really, 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 really touching. I mean, you covered both films with quite a good amount of detail, so I'm not going to go too far here, but I agree both films truly are haunting. I think Bleed With Me, one of the fundamental issues I found with like the Fantasia viewing experience is just you see so many similar genre films in such a short amount of time, and Bleed With Me sadly really fell into like feeling the effects of that for me it is one of those films where it starts to question oh you know are things in the shadows you know and it really starts to question what is reality what isn't and when you've seen 20 other features that even though this is really well directed and really well crafted that have a similar story it starts to just naturally lose some of its effects so i fully will say i need to watch bleed with me again but as far as the directing and especially the acting in that film really really spectacular women or women in women of the photographs i believe it's called blew me away it is a stunningly haunting and deep film uh not just with its views on how society objectifies and um 
engages with pain and suffering and self-harm, you know, especially, and how it kind of romanticizes that and uses it as a tool for promotion. But just in general, when it comes to editing and when it comes to how we present ourselves visually, and it's not just film that says, oh, you want to have the perfect nose and the perfect chin and blah, blah, blah. It goes much, much deeper than that. And truly, I found that just to be like one of the most stunning films of the festival. It blew me away. One of the movies that, one of my favorite movies from the festival was called Sheep Without a Shepherd. And it's a Chinese film about a Chinese family that lives in Thailand. And this is just like a little bit of a warning. The daughter does get raped in the film, which is like the catalyst of what happens. So she goes off to like a, an academic camp and meets a boy and he takes advantage of her and films it. And this boy happens to be the son of the local police chief. And he goes back again and tries to do it again to the daughter. I think her name is, was Ping Ping. And she fortunately tells her mother what happens. And they actually end up killing him when entering like the confrontation. And so now this family is like tasked with having to like cover up the murder of the son of like the police chief. And the dad does a really interesting job of that because uh, the dad is really into movies, especially true crime movies. So he uses his like knowledge of film to figure out how to cover up the murder. And so there's lots of like movies that we see the dad watching. And then like one of them that I remember was a witness for the prosecution, which he like studies for how to uh, like craft a good alibi. And it's, I think it's a very, very interesting film for people who like obviously love film and people who are like into true crime because it was really cool that he used this like his love of movies for how to cover up this like horrible incident and I think the film like does a really good job touching on like abuse of power and like police brutality because the kid who gets murdered is the son of like the police chief and so the police chief is the rapist mother and so she thinks that her son is just missing and so she like does like a lot of terrible things and goes like especially I know like Thailand is like has like some issues with their like policing and criminal justice system but there are a lot of things in the film that are very very dark and heavy with the choices that she makes so I think it's really interesting that it came at like a time when police policing is being like questioned around the world so I don't know if anyone else has seen it but I really, really liked the concept behind it. So we've spoke about a lot through this podcast about, you know, anticipation and director debuts and stuff like that. And to be honest, I'm, the, the one thing that even before this uh, Fantasia film sort of was happening was the fact that there was one film that was getting a bit of buzz that I did a little bit of researching because I saw a lot of people tweeting about it and it had sort of this notoriety level before it even started. And that's uh, Yuji's Shimomura's Crazy Samurai Musashi. Now, it's very difficult to explain this film and not sort of underwhelm it. But this is a film that's ninety-one minutes. It's 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 a it's a samurai film. Um, it has a three-act structure. It has a beginning. It has a middle and an end. And I'll touch upon that in, in a little bit. Um, but it has a seventy-seven-minute uncut, unedited action set piece of the main well, this main anti-hero antagonist. Um, fighting what feels like 175 people 
before anything else in this the, the, in this review, I'll just state by that was the first thing I heard, and the first thing I thought going to Fantasia is that we, you know, that's one thing that generally sounds so appealing to me. I find that fascinating. Seventy-seven minutes, legitimized, uncut action set piece to me was something that was generally really, 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 really engaging. So, going into that film, I'm not going to sort of hold back. I was I was anticipating this. I did have sort of an idea of what I wanted to see. I had an expectation, and the result of this film was incredibly underwhelming. Now, again, I'm, I'm going to have to back this up, so I, I do apologize for going on and on. But I think it's only fair that I defend it with, with, with you know with my opinions after I've I've sort of you know gone after it. I best describe this film as what feels like a video game. You have a prologue, you have the actual game itself and levels. And then you have an epilogue. Now, the prologue yeah, is an interesting one because it's 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 shot in a very very similar manner to the epilogue, but, but all three of them are so distinctively sort of discombobulated that it, it just arises more issue. But if we just go into the prologue, it's just a video game prologue. So you get all the characters that you need to know about. You get all their feelings, their their thoughts, what side they're on. We get all the very very easy stuff out of the way for the first five minutes. There is a situation where this samurai then kills two people um, who it's quite, it's quite difficult to watch because these two, one of them's a very young, one of them's very old, very difficult to watch, like I said, and then all of a sudden the film cuts, uh, title, and then we get a 77 minute level style action set piece that in my opinion, and I know people might disagree with it, but it would so video game to a T, it was almost meta. It is just basically an enemy comes forward this character does the exact same um, sort of technique of, of, of taking them away. CGI blood that doesn't look very good, doesn't look very effective. Rinse and repeat for, for 77 minutes, and then that, that's your, your action set piece. Now, you might be thinking, and I know Carson might disagree, Alina might disagree, um, Diego yourself, you might disagree if you've seen it, but I'll just say this. To say that 77 minutes, the exact same thing happens, uh, would be an understatement. This is like picking up a controller and pressing B to slice, and it's that for 77 minutes. The camera never moves. You're behind the sort of this anti-hero or antagonist um, in the exact same sort of idea. There's horrible lighting going on here. The, fill, the, the lighting is done in a way that the sun is hitting the back of the character, so you have a shadow over starting everything. I don't know if that's a conscious decision or if that's just a lighting issue, but it's one thing that sort of helps the film and that you don't get to see a lot of the shadowing of the technical crew behind it. On occasion, you do. I never guess this is an achievement. This is a feat. I, I can deal deal with that. It's not a problem. I think that those are small elements that when someone's being ambitious, you have to just take on the chin and chill. Like that's going to happen. So I, I, I do. I'm not going to hold that against it. But I think that the camera level, the camera work, is very, very disappointing. The camera just never moves. There's no fluidity. You're just stuck behind this character, and you feel like you're slashing B all the time. And it, it may sound appealing on paper, and it does. It sounds so generally batshit crazy. But visually, in this medium, it just doesn't work to the extent I think the filmmaker wanted to do it. There are fake edits throughout the film where it will stop, it will cut away into sort of into a tree and then move on, very much like we see in 1917, or the opening of Spectre. Very Hollywood-like. Hollywood it's nothing like Victoria, which actually is balls to the wall, crazy one shot two and a half hour bank robber film i always recommend that film go out by it it's amazing it's generally one stunning film to watch this 
the edits are so, I, I, I wouldn't say they're very uh, jarring, but they're, they're identifiable. And to be honest, maybe for the casual eye, maybe that, that'll get away with it a little bit. Again, it's difficult to sort of attack that, but it's just one thing that just didn't work for me. It's way too jarring. And then the, the character sort of almost just stops, has a drink every time, like he's ha- like having a health bar or something. The actor on multiple occasions breaks the fourth wall and stares at the camera. Um, again, another element I couldn't help but notice. 67 minutes later, we get into a courtyard. The same thing happens. No fluid is with the camera. It's just boring. I'm just there, just generally hoping that something happens. All of a sudden, we actually get a definitive cut. And then we, we fast forward in within the film, what feels like decades almost. And then you get this epilogue. And this is where I get the biggest problem with this film. is that all three aspects of this film, the prologue, the main story, the 77-minute edit, and the, the epilogue, feel like they're shot by three different, distinctively different directors of talent, of merit, of ideology, and of vision. It's incredibly jarring, and it's really, 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 really poor. Now, this prologue is one thing, and I think it's it's an interesting one, because it's out of the three uh, arcs, let's say, it's the one that I have least problem with. And I know I've gone off on 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 this 77-minute action sequence, but even that, to a degree... I can understand the, the the trials and tribulations of that. And, you know, plaudits where plaudits do it. You don't get to see that a lot. Well done, independent cinema especially. It's difficult with budget constraints. The epilogue, however, is the most condescending piece of the cinema, uh, this, this type of cinema I've seen. It is shot in such a well-done aesthetical fashion. It's sharp, it's quick, it's constrained, it's tactile, it's vicious. It's engaging. And I'm watching it, and for three, three minutes this happens. And I'm thinking, where the fuck has this been? Where has this been? I've been desperately wanting this for the last 80 minutes or so. Where is it? And the, the, the audacity of the film is to get to this sort of aspect where these two characters meet. And that you think, wow, here we go. This is a f-, and it just ends. And it's as, it's as brittle, as abrupt as, as just me saying, just talking about just me describing, describing it. It is the most condescending film I've seen in a long time. And to me personally, it's, it's, again, there's passion here, there's a dedication here to the craft, there's an, there's an ambition here. And we spoke about She Dies Tomorrow, about ambition and, and stuff like that, and, and, and you know, dedication and, and, and stuff like that. And this is a film that is definitely ambitious for what it is, but it's just so jarring, so difficult to sort of enjoy and then you get to that final piece at the end where you think wow and that's a film i want to have seen all along but it's but 83 minutes it's way too late and to be honest the more i think about this film the more actively disappointed i am about it because the one thing it has going for it is that 77 minute um edit and to be honest it is probably the 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 weakest attribute this film can this this film entails now I don't know what the consensus on this, to be honest, as of yet. I know that it has a lot of hype surrounding it. I don't know if it's critically acclaimed. Or I, I don't know. But to be honest, I don't, want, I don't like doing this because I think with festivals, you want to highlight the positives. This is what we're here for. I don't really like doing poor lists. I don't like doing top worst lists or whatever. But this, this film here, I've got to admit, is probably my worst film of the festival. And, and, and granted, I haven't seen everything. But if you're speaking about levels of, of hype, not even not per se hype, but just of ambition and, and something that, that I, I become enamoured with because I want to see this succeed. 
and just to, to be sort of con- con- condemned in this, this as, a, as a, an audience member into this just trivial, boring pursuit of watching this character who you don't know anything about, who's got no personality, no charisma, who does the same thing for 77 minutes over and over again to get three minutes of just of an action samurai film where I'm just genuinely blown away by how good it looks to then you took it away and, and, and then to say to me, this is my film. I just, I, I'm just blown away with, with the actual audacity to, to do that. And to me, again, it underwhelms me even more, upsets me even more that this, was, this had so much potential, it just wasted away. I will give credit where credit is due with this film. You know, they did the 77 minute scene and it serves its purpose. It does have, I will appreciate the people behind the visual effects and the uh, sound editing for actually having to go in and every single individual slice for all 588 enemies. They have to go in and put a little bit of blood and make the sound effect. Um, it serves its purpose though. I mean, this is a very like un interesting samurai film that's main drawing power is just the simple fact that there is an action scene like this and whether you, it works or not for you that's the reason why it's on people's so many people's tongues so you know hey it's a good marketing strategy um yeah it's boring as fuck though i mean this is a boring it's not even the experience of playing a video game it's an experience of watching someone else play a video game but with no commentary or no banter or no talking between you and that person very similar to my issues with hardcore henry though hardcore henry had so much more engaging visuals than this there was a point an hour into this uh action scene where they go and like he finally sees like a bigger bad guy quote unquote on the like on a bridge and it's not just an immediate one strike kill and i cannot tell you how exciting that was compared to the rest of the action in the movie that it took like three strikes to actually kill a character um it's distracting even with how they actually pull it off you can see the dead enemies crawling off screen because obviously they're not gonna have 588 extras so they have to reuse extras it's just badly, badly done. The camera quality itself, yes, the cinematography and shot composition and lighting is not good. The camera itself is of a lesser quality than the rest of the movie, which is very confusing and distracting. Yeah, this is a movie that, you know, it's marketable. It definitely has its purpose, but when in actual practicality, it's really hard to recommend this film. It's just so boring is like sadly the only uh, option you know way i can put it i mentioned that this feels like watching someone else play a video game with the video game connection another film at the festival was detention which was actually based on a video game um i didn't know that until i was writing my review for it so this is a film that takes place in taiwan during the white terror period of martial law i mean it's about a group of high schoolers and they try to tell this story through a horror genre um, where you have these characters waking up in mysterious, like, oh, their high school is abandoned and there's jump scares. Um, and it works to a point. This is undoubtedly a haunting film. And when they use really clever visuals to display the actual horrors of what these characters are experiencing, it's engaging and unique. But I constantly found that the actual like jump scare horror portion of the film held the movie down. And tonally, it just felt very all over the place. And I think a lot of that is just in the actual adaptation from game to movie. These are two very, very different mediums. And when it comes to actual engagement and switching between tones, how they work are very different. And definitely the screenplay needed to change up some of its layout to actually fully work. Um, But I believe, Jack, you had some stuff to say about this one. So I'll pass it over to you. 
You know, Carsten, I, I do this every week and it feels like this is generally bingo for us. And if anyone's out there, drink. But I, I can't really not disagree with you here. And again, it's like a, a broken record. So uh, sorry to anyone <laughs> expecting me to, to say anything different here. Right. So detention, finding out just at this moment it's a video game is quite interesting. Right. So detention's a strange one because out of every horror film that's here, and this is a genre filled uh, film festival and, and, and I don't know if anyone's noticed but I sort of gravitate myself to this this type of filmmaking um, I love Asian cinema it, I'm, I'm always at that sort of disposal of thinking and I've said this to quite a few writers on, on board um, on, on Clapper is that if you're going to attend a festival you know yes you can go see films that, that are big like Steve McQueen or you know like Steve McQueen's films or you know Walking Phoenix as, a, as Joker and, and stuff like that, but it's really the films in the middle that you'll never get to see again, and that's where you want to support. It is good seeing these big, high-level films, but seeing these smaller um, films that have passion, who are made with extreme passion on the street. Um, I can I can never fucking say this word. Shoe string budget is always going to be really, really, really powerful for that filmmaker, even if they don't know it. I think that they would they most definitely appreciate it, and um, I generally love. East Asian horror. I think it's fucking fascinating. Um, and Petty Gore, that's, um, I, I believe, is, um, oh, I can never remember. I, I believe it's, it's, a, it's a Thai film as well, uh, which is generally like very similar to Hereditary and Midsummer put together. Uh, an astonishing piece of horror, incredibly frightening. It does lose its way at the end. Um, but again, anyone goes to see that, so I'm sure I do that now. So Detention, when this came, came up, this is another film on my list, straight away requested. And this is where I come to my review, right? So for horror films, I think iconography-wise, this is outstanding. And what I mean by iconography is that in a horror film, I want to be left either fucking horrified or frightened to death about the material I witnessed. And I think this does a very good job of both. It's a very, very good genre piece. There are things in here that are very reminiscent of the likes of Silent Hill, the likes of Resident Evil. Uh, if anything, it's John Sue. He's the director. I believe that's, that's correct. John Sue would make a wonderful Resident Evil film. Uh, this, it, to find this a video game, it, it makes sense now, it really does. Uh, the, the Silent Hill connection, the, the Resident Evil video game connection, it feels a lot more whole. It does change my sort of opinion on it a little bit. But overall, I think it's a film that, even though it has really, really interesting iconography, and for the most part, it's a very engaging film setting it during, like you said, the white terror in Taiwan during a Cold War, high school, a young girl. There's a lot to bite off here and there's a lot to chew. I don't think the film chokes, but I think it, it, it does sort of over sort of stuff its face a lot in, into sort of touching what it wants to touch about because ultimately it's a film about guilt. Again, it's a good horror piece and it, it has good iconography, but it's not a film that will leave you at all feeling or understanding about that guilt. It will never make you feel icky. It'll never make you feel, oh, wow, that was, oh, that's a bit brutal. There's nothing like that. It's not a gritty film per se. There is moments in it which are, which are quite strong, um, and you make of that as you will. But overall, it's a film that I found to be very, uh, very average at the end, and average at best, I think. It was just a film that, as, as time went on, at 103 minutes, I think it most definitely could be shorter. But I just, I felt myself getting lost in the idea of, what was I expecting from it? And then what was a film giving me? And to be honest, I had a, I said that this identity crisis for myself throughout the film that I was sort of wondering if I had to gain something for it or the film would, would help me find that. And what I mean by that is I don't think the film knew it wants to be a thriller or a horror. 
again, those two can be mutually exclusive and at the same time don't have to be. So it's an interesting one where, where John Sue goes, from, goes with that. And again, it's a, very, it's a very interesting film. I think for horror fans who like this sort of stuff, definitely check it out. It could have been a lot more than what it, what it, what it probably should have been. But nevertheless, to know it's a video game adaption, I'm, I would say I'm very pleasantly surprised with it. I just hope that a lot of people sort of understand that before going into it, because I think there'll be probably a newfound appreciation of it, like myself. I did find that it sort of, it did touch on a, on a few sort of really dark moments, like I've said before, and it does sort of politically talk about moments that happened and atrocities that happened. But I think the film likes to forget about that instead and talks about more about, you know, again, again it is that sort of idea of guilt and and to, to defend honour and then questions what is honour, what is, you know, I, I, I'm trying not to give anything away, but it's a, it, I, overall, I think it's a very, 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 very well done film. Uh, not my favourite horror of, of the of the whole uh, festival, but I think in the same realm as you, Cass, I'm, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised with it. I was just going to talk about really quickly. Um, it, it's a film that sort of is, is also showing at Fright Fest um, at the same time, and I, I I did cover it for for that, but I do want to talk about it here. It's another film that's again. It's, I can't really sort of applaud Fantasia enough here because we've got director debuts, we've got returning members, we've got well-known members like Neil Marshall and stuff like that. We've got a lot of women behind the camera. Uh, we, I, you know, we've got a lot of diversity here. Like, you know, we're going to talk about the Paper Tigers and stuff like that. There's a really, Zanzaru, a really strong films about culture and stuff like that. One film I was very, very optimistic about again, and, and this is a very cynical nature of myself, just constantly having to be very optimistic about stuff. But, the reason why I, I do is, is, is relevant to the, the material itself is the um, columnist. This is a film uh, set in, 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 I believe it's in the Netherlands, um, and it follows Katja Herbers as uh, Fanky Boot, who is a columnist, the titular uh, character. She is a writer uh, who talks about sort of feminism, talks about very centric ideas um, of, of to be better people to each other and stuff like that, blah, blah, blah. You know, we see this every day. You would think that, you know, at this rate, these people are talking mad with how, you know, the, the consensus is against them. But it's someone who generally talks sense, just wants the, the uh, society to be better to each other. We should we shouldn't really expect any different, you know, it's, it's sort of this casual sort of idea of what you think would be right in the world. The film takes a very interesting idea where it sort of has her have a mental breakdown on Twitter. Now, as you can imagine, any lefty on, on, on Twitter or any righty on Twitter, you have this constant battle online. And this film does a really interesting job of sort of exploring that to a degree of looking at the other side of, of, of the left taking their arms up and then doing something about it. It's an interesting film. It really is. It's a very powerful film. It is a horror first and foremost, and that needs to be said. And it does really sort of enjoy itself as a horror. There's a lot of stuff here that, that I think um, if it was a, 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 I want to say westernized film, but if it came out in America, like a, like stuff like a American um, Assassination Nation, sorry, I think people would honestly want to fucking boycott this thing because it's very, very powerful of how it talks about how it wants to deal with issues like this. Obviously, in, 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 in a way that's very controversial, but you ultimately see Funky Boots, the character Funky Boots just lose the plot and, and be engulfed with, with a Twitter feed, which is calling her, you know, names that are just abhorrent and you know horrific stuff like it she's throughout the film questioned as a paedophile and it's and, and it comes from an article she did 10 years ago 
with a different context entirely. And as soon as Twitter get that, they just gravitate and just annihilate her. They, they, they make accusations about her faith, if she pays a tax about her ch- children, the fact that she, she doesn't have a man in her life, all these sort of really horrific things. And really what starts it off is that she has this neighbour that comes around who to her face is really nice. And um, she comes home from work once on a bike and he jumps out running to the pub and he's in blackface. It's a very jarring moment because she's shocked and, and as, as anyone should be to just see this, this man jump out in blackface, laugh and run away without any context. It's generally quite a disturbing thing to find out. So she does this Twitter dive and finds out that he's actually giving her shit online, calling her loads of things. Something ensues, she loses the plot, something happens, and then she goes on this path of hunting down all these fuckers on Twitter who have called her out in styles of, of let's say, execution that are graphic beyond belief. But the film balances that horror notion with a really interesting comment on the depths of social media. And we've spoke about this a lot with, you know, um, you know uh, women of the photographs uh, and stuff like that. And, and, and obviously there was a film called Beauty Water that's not on now, but also comments on stuff like this where Fantasia this year have done a really good, uh, have got a really good filmography where um, they're questioning society. For good or for bad, it's questioning society. We should always question society. We should always, always question um, good and, and, and bad. We should always have those conversations. Granted, this film does it to a very, very strong degree where it's, you know, woof, it's, it's a lot to take. You, you do find it as an audience member that you, you, you root for this character at the beginning and slowly but surely it's not the path. And it's very difficult to sort of watch this character be engulfed with the idea of what she's doing is right. She's reappropriating the rights mentality or what, what is perceived in the film as a rights mentality. I don't want to offend anyone here. Um, but obviously if you go on Twitter, there's obviously one sort of angle political where they're just unsufferable and the other ones are just trying to get something done. You make that of you will. But um, again, the film does a really good balance of sort of questioning society, the merits of it, how we sort of respond to these incidents, silence, uh, action, commentary. Uh, there's an interesting sort of, conversation on free speech as well, misogyny in the work, workforce. Really interesting sort of film to, 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 to really divulge. Again, the balance between the horror and that sort of social uh, context is really well done. The one thing I do sort of be wary of this, that, that there's, there are certain sort of comments in this film where it's just genuinely like, wow, it's, the film goes for it. And before long, it leaves on sort of like, a, I'm not going to sort of spoil anything, but it does leave on a cliffhanger where there's sort of no retribution. There's no, uh, you know, justifiable comments or, or you know, the, the, the film doesn't hold anyone accountable, let's say. And we've spoke about that a lot on other films where, you know, we, we spoke about it multiple times where, you know, you, you have, a, have, a, have a group of characters and they're, they're pieces of shit. And if the film is, is voicing, I think, I'll just say this now that I think, we we speak about it a lot, but it's sort of, I need to sort of just talk about it. But the New Mutants is one where we didn't sort of touch upon it because I think Twitter did a better idea of what we could have done. But if a character like Anya Taylor Joy in the film, I think she's she's very good in the film, but her character says some horrible comments to to um, to an indigenous person. She makes multiple multiple comments about it. All the characters are pieces of shit, misogynistic. A lot of them are homophobic. The film doesn't 
question that and doesn't um, have an, um, an accountability for it. So ultimately, the film is allowing that to, to be said. And at the end, when they're all walking away and they're all friends, spoiler, but the film's been out two weeks. And if you haven't been anticipating for two years, who are you? But um, let's just get back to the point. It is just that thing where if the film isn't holding these characters accountability, um, for the audience to understand. Ultimately, it's reinforcing the idea that it's acceptable. And in groups like that, those comments are made. They are, they are prevalent. And this is a film that it, 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 it touches upon a lot of very, very hard-hitting comments. And it does it in a way where a lot of people won't find it justified because it's using horror. And we spoke, I spoke about this a lot with, with the idea of you know, self-harm and stuff like within other films where it does feel slightly exploitative. But here... Again, I talk about balance a lot on this podcast, but I think it's well-balanced and there's a lot of comment to make. But the accountability question is very, very difficult as an audience member here because ultimately the villains of a piece are not particularly villains of the piece. And also your, your protagonist is not necessarily the protagonist. And there's this murky idea of that all these characters are far more dimensional and not one note as, as, as you would want to believe or expect but how the film deals with it in its final act, specifically its last few moments. I don't know if it's a, it's a conscious decision by the director in the film, but it leaves it in a very murky waters where I just felt that there should have been something to really hold someone accountable for their actions. Because at the end of the day, there's a lot that goes on here. There's a lot of vile stuff and a lot of things happen. And I know it's just a film, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's a very controversial film. And I can see this being on lists of, of, of dangerous films and et cetera, stuff like that. I don't think it's to that extent. It's a fucking film. But it's interesting just to see what the politics are behind this film. That's all. That's all I'm trying to say, really. But it, again, yes, it was probably one of my favourite films of the, uh, of the, the, the festival. But it, not, not sort of close to private chat. I know we'll talk about that later. But it's, it's a very uh, ambitious film. But it is controversial, nevertheless. So I watched the closing film for Fantasia, which was called The Legend of Baron Toa. And it's a New Zealand film, but all the characters in it are Tongan. And so the main character is named Fritz. And his dad used to be a professional wrestler, but he didn't go down that path. He is some sort of salesman in Australia. And he's coming back to his like home neighborhood in New Zealand to sell the family home because his father had like passed away a few years ago and now he's like finally ready to sell the home but like Fritz goes back and finds that their neighborhood has been overtaken by like a gang called the pig hunters because like since his father isn't like alive anymore to like keep the peace it's like the whole like cul-de-sac has like gone to hell and so like Fritz doesn't like really care about this he doesn't want to be like involved in his like home life but his uncle who is, like, his father's brother, still lives in the house, and he, like, refuses to, like, move out of the house unless Fritz can, like, get the neighborhood back in order. And because the gang stole Baron Toa's, like, championship belt that was, like, in their house, and they use it as, like, a trophy in, like, the gang, and, like, that is not okay in, like, the professional wrestling world. And especially since, like, Baron Toa has, like, passed away, it's, like, one of the only things that his family still has is his like legacy so Fritz has to like go and get that back and like at first he tries to do it with like diplomacy and all these things and that that doesn't work because the only way you can earn a championship title is by winning it so it was really good I love 
New Zealand films that focus on Pacific Islanders. Like the people that produce this film, All Excuse to Fly, which I covered for Clapper for Fan Perspectives earlier this year. So I really liked it. I knew I was gonna like it for that reason because I really enjoyed Fly. And I think it's just really cool that Pacific Islander stories are becoming like more and more mainstream. Like I know a lot of people have watched like Taika Waititi's movies, but the ones this year are the first ones that I'm seeing like outside of his filmography. And I really liked the connection to professional wrestling because Pacific Islanders don't really have a lot of like representation, diversity in media, but in the professional wrestling world, they're like heroes. Like you have Dwayne The Rock Johnson, obviously, and like all of his family, the Wild Samoans, Samoa Joe, like I could keep like rattling them all off. Like in the professional wrestling world, it's like one of the very few places that Pacific Islanders have been like heroes on screen. So I think it was really interesting that they made Baron Toa a professional wrestler because I thought it was like a homage to uh, that history of Pacific Islander culture because it was just, it was really, really good. If you're a professional wrestling fan, you're going to see like all of that like history and connection and culture in it. Um, like even in the fight scenes, Fritz uses like a lot of professional wrestling moves like suplexes and DDTs that you normally like don't see in like regular old fights. The actual plot is kind of, it goes like in a very like expected way, like that doesn't surprise you at all, but the characters and just like seeing like Tongan culture and how it relates to professional wrestling on screen was really, really special. So I think it's still worth checking out, even if it doesn't like do really anything to surprise you. And then if we want to keep going on with the whole fighting theme, I also watched the Paper Tigers, and that was also really <laughs> special too. Um, I haven't ever watched like a martial arts movie in full, but I know my dad and uncles were really into them. And the cool thing about the Paper Tigers is it's very, it's more character driven rather than like traditional martial arts movies where things just happen to get to like the next fight. In this one, the fights are more like sprinkled in. And I really liked the like callback to like traditional uh, martial arts like elements. Um, so it's about these three like men who were like disciples as teenagers of their Sifu. And then over time, they like drift away from their like gung fu training and like leave behind their master and just like age and become like regular middle aged adults. And they haven't spoken to their master in like years and years. And they've also just drifted apart from each other. But they come back together when their master dies. And one of the other like gung fu practitioners like hints that he might have actually been murdered. And so like the three, they, they're called the three men. They're like known as the three tigers, which is where the paper tigers comes from. Um, and they like set out to like figure out what actually happened to their master. And it also has like a lot of comedic elements as well because these men are in like middle age now. So like Danny, the like main tiger, he spends his like whole life as an insurance salesman. So he just like doesn't work out at all. So he's like super, super winded during all the fights, which is really funny. And then when the other characters hang, he has like a permanent leg injury, injury that like affects all of his fighting and always like locks up and he like falls over a lot. And then Jim, which is the last one, 
he actually still fights, but he left behind a lot of his like gung fu training and shifted to like boxing. So whenever he's like doing the gung fu challenges, he like forgets a lot of like the traditional things. It's just, I really, it was really sweet and funny. And I think if you have like a soft spot for martial arts movies, it's like definitely good to check it out. I, what I liked about Fantasia is a lot of the action movies like really centered on like men of color, which is like not something that we see often. And they have like a lot of like their culture like sprinkled into it or like even the culture of like Chinese Kung Fu and like Pacific Islander wrestling are like at the heart of these movies. And it's like a lot different than traditional action movies like normally are. So I'd recommend seeing The Paper Tigers as well. Yeah, that's an incredibly fun film, especially from a genre that I don't always quite appreciate as much as I want to. I think the world and lore that goes into The Paper Tigers really is what makes it something special. Another movie that really stood out to me, my favorite narrative film that I saw at the festival was The Five Rules of Success. Um, This film, wow. Um, What a directorial outing for Orson Oblotis. I'm sorry I ruined your last name. I'm horrible at pronouncing things. An incredible film. Such a interesting, violent, and angry meditation on society around us. It follows an ex-convict who gets out of jail um, and tries to find his way. He becomes really interested in culinary and becoming a chef, but then he also starts to get involved in some of the bad areas of society just naturally. Um, and this is a really powerful film. It reminded me a bit of The Last Black Man in San Francisco in the sense of how much of a meditation it was on society, where that was a very artistic and very quiet meditation. This is, again, very angry, very tense, very violent. But with that said, there isn't really a ton of violence. Sometimes there'll be flashes to what the character wishes he could do, which would be violent. Um, But overall, this is just a very well-crafted, just, I mean, not just well-crafted, but like this is a master class of crafting and directing and building a character you can understand and reflecting on society in a really skillful matter. Um, it's hard to even talk about the film because I don't want to get too much into it, but it also has one of like the most unique and captivating visual styles I've seen all year. Some of the best editing of the year this far. Um, some of the best cinematography easily of the year so far. This is a film I really cannot say enough good things about. This, I mean, it blew me away. Like I said, it is my favorite narrative film I saw at the festival, which already I've mentioned I've liked quite a few. This was definitely not like, oh, a week festival to get this, you know, be my favorite one. This was really something special. I don't know when it will be released, but whenever it comes out, watch out for the five rules of success. It's not going to be everyone's film. Again, it's very hard to get through at points. It's very aggressive. But if you are okay with more aggressive films, I think this is going to be something you'll greatly enjoy. And where that came later on in the festival for me, one film to really stand out at the beginning of the festival, especially for acting and the screenplay, is The Oak Room. Um, Again, this is a film that's kind of hard to talk about considering so much of it is shrouded in mystery. It takes place on a cold winter night. It's in the middle of a blizzard where this kid named Steve, played by RJ Mitt, uh, comes back to this bar and meets with a guy named Paul, uh, played by Peter Outerbridge. Um, and they have a long history together, and they engage in dialogue. It's very tense. 
Um, I'm sorry for being so vague, but I really don't want to give away the details of this plot. Um, I think that these are two really fantastic performances that like showcase no new parts of these characters or these actors, especially for RJ Mitt. Everyone will know him from Breaking Bad fame. Uh, but this character, if you had any doubts that he could control a room when it comes to emotion and just line delivery, this will prove him as an actor to watch out for. Um, and like I said, the screenplay I greatly enjoyed. But Diego, I believe you really love this film. So I'm going to pass it over to you. Yeah, I actually found it to be one of the most kind of intricate of the festival because most of the other ones were very like experimental, but this one was actually like narratively intricate. And I'd say it almost played like a like the Hateful Eight or like one of those Tarantino films where there's like a bunch of plot lines weaving through. It only takes place in, a, I believe, like two bars, but there's quite a few reveals going on and things shifting behind the scenes. And it does leave a couple of things open to interpretation, which I appreciated as well. One other thing that I do want to mention is, again, RJ Mitt's central performance was amazing, but also everyone else delivered just brilliant performances. It was meant to be a play, or it was a play, I believe, and then it was adapted into a film. So it did rely a lot, of, a lot on the characters' performances and everyone there delivered to make it a very believable and enjoyable film. And I also do want to mention that I actually had a chance to interview RJ Mitt for the site, and it's going to be on the podcast as well, I believe, in the next couple of days. But since we both shared some similar conditions, I got to interview him a little bit more in depth and at a pretty unique angle, I'd say. So be sure to check that out as well. Alina, have you seen uh, The Oak Room? Yeah, I did. I did watch it. Um, I feel like I disagree with you guys on like the acting. I wasn't really a big fan of it. I thought it felt like really forced. But I did really like the like screenplay and writing. And I liked the... Uh, like nods to Canada, like they even mentioned my hometown at one point, and I was like, you know, that Leonardo DiCaprio pointing meme. I was like, oh my god, same. I grew up there too. <laughs> um, but I did really, really enjoy the ending. I still think it's like worth checking out. And I think R.J. Mitt was really great in it. I just like I didn't like like the other acting quite as much as everyone else did. Well, to round out this special episode of Clappercast, what we're going to do is we're going to end on each of our three personal favourite picks of the festival. So um, I feel like I've spoke loads today, so I'm going to be very quick with mine. Um, my first one, and this is no in particular order, is Private Chat. I don't know how to even describe it again. Um, it's just something you, I think, any any fans of Julie Fox, seek it out. Any fans of the Safford Brothers, seek it out. Any fans of independent cinema, seek it out. Two of the films I actually haven't mentioned on the podcast, but I'm going to do it very, very quickly. The first one is just a special mention because of its poignancy, and that's Obiashi's Labyrinth of Cinema. Didn't see it uh, at this festival. I hope loads of people did. I did get to see it at Rotterdam. A very, very special filmmaker, a cult hero in Japan, um, incredibly influential filmmaker, made the likes of House. I reviewed um, the, the, the film for, um, for Clapper at Rotterdam. I also interviewed Rei Yoshida, the young girl and main character of it. I also interviewed uh, Takako uh, Tokiwa. I was really, really down to really do something about this film uh, due to the passing of Obiashi, um, due to cancer uh, a few months excuse me, a few months ago. It couldn't be any more poignant for a filmmaker of his talent, of his credibility, uh, of his career to make a film that looks back on at the, through the eyes of cinema through Japan. Um, an incredible piece of work has this really, really. Um, strange edit I must admit it's very jarring but it is a film that any film fan needs to go out and, uh, and see straight away also go out and watch Obiashi's work give that man uh, some credit to his name 
He's one of the founding fathers of, uh, fathers of New Wave Japanese cinema, uh, an incredible filmmaker. He will be sorely missed. Even in his old age, he was still knocking out 180 minutes experimental film. Crazy stuff. One of the film that I wanted to pick out as well, speaking about experimental and also uh, comes from East Asia, is I Weirdo. Now, a lot of people didn't get to see this film at the, the festival, unfortunately. Um, I did. Uh, very lucky, and I'm so glad I did. This is the first film, um, allegedly, I put that in air quotes, that is uh, the first Asian film shot on an iPhone. Very much in the same way as Soderbergh's Un uh, um, Unsane and, and High Flying Birds, etc. so far for Sean Baker's films. This is one's a little bit different, though. This is, a, this is not a genre piece of any kind. This is a film about two young kids, teenagers, who have um, OCD disorders, who can't leave... Uh, their houses have to go in hazmat suits who find it really difficult to gel and, and find other people in the world like them. Uh, they find each other once, I believe, on a train uh, and they become enamored with each other and they decide to, to, to try and have a relationship. It's a comedy first and foremost, but, it's, it, but I'll, 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 I, actually, I'll reveal a little bit, but I'll be very quickly um, in how I describe it. Um, they, they fall in love, uh, they decide to move into a flat um, and then one day something happens and it changes their relationship forever and the film chronicles that relationship um, ultimately and its inevitability of, of it being destroyed. On the surface, a really wonderful, well-performed film. The execution of it being on, a, on an iPhone looks tremendous. The, cho the choice of aspect ratio, how it changes, the choice of how it blows up to 185.1, or in this case, 16.9, because the corners are, are, are shaped uh, in a circular motion, not square. Check the Zero Theorem, Terry Gilliam's film for another little tidbit there. That's for your trivia people out there. Really, 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 really cool film production-wise, Miss Unseen, as, as, Aspect Ratio. How all that elicits mood, broods it, makes it incredibly more heartwarming. It, it it's really difficult to watch at times with how these two people um, fall out of love. A really touching film. It does do something narratively in its final act that did a, a little bit sort of destroy me both emotionally and, 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 and did really, really upset me in the fact that I think the director does go one step too far in, uh, in narrative plot device and, and decision. However, another film that needs to be applauded about is just extremely experimental, wonderfully crafted. It's not a gimmick. It's generally a, a really tremendous piece of cinema. Those are my three pieces, either three very different pieces of cinema. All three of them are exceptional. Definitely check them all out. I can't recommend Fantasia enough. The stuff they put on this year, women in film, director debuts, loads of genre pieces. What a wonderful celebration of cinema. Um, I'm so lucky and so proud to have, have, have done this with everyone here for Clapper. I can't wait until next year. Um, hopefully I'll be able to attend it. Um, I'm very, very excited to, to see the future of Fantasia because this, this year was exceptional for independent cinema. I think it really says something about the strength of the festival that we went this entire time without mentioning Labyrinth of Cinema. It's not one of my top three, but I'll quickly mention a masterful three-hour swan song to Obayashi, one of my favorite directors of all time. Uh, visually stunning. Just if you get a chance, check it out. I, I'll agree just in general. I think Fantasia, in terms of festivals I've covered when it comes to overall quality of film, this was honestly number one. There really wasn't a single film I hated. This is a really, really solid lineup that celebrates diversity in a very casual and not pandering sense that I loved. When it comes to my three favorites, we've mentioned all of them, so I'm going to move decently quick. Number three is Clapboard Jungle. Really, really adore this documentary. I'm so happy to see so many people giving it love. Number two is The Five Rules of Success. 
just stunning, beautiful. Um, and number one is Feels Good Man. I cannot get over how amazing that documentary is. It is now available on PVOD. So if you get the chance, you know, hey, you can check it out now. And like I said, I would highly, highly recommend it to anyone, even if you are not necessarily interested in Pepe the Frog himself, as I was not. This says so much more about internet culture. And if you spend any time online, this is almost must watch for this year. So this was my first time covering Fantasia Film Festival, and I do have to agree with both Jack and Carson, and I assume Alina, that it was a great experience, even though it was an online festival and it was different from years past from what I've heard. It was very enjoyable and everyone was super professional and I just, I loved how it was all handled. My three favorites we've also discussed at length here as well. So I'll also go quick through them. Number three is Clapboard Jungle, which I do believe is essential viewing for just, even for film schools, it should become a part of their curriculum. Number two is survival skills, just because of how they use the aesthetic to create kind of that downward, the story of downward trajectory. But number one has to be Zinzaru. It was just, it's unlike anything I've seen at that festival and pretty much a super unique film. And it will actually be playing at the Vancouver International Film Festival, I believe at the end of this month. So make sure to check it out there if you haven't checked it out before. So I feel like my three favorites are really obvious considering the like lengths I chatted about them. Three, I think is the Paper Tigers. I thought it was so funny. It felt like such a dad movie. It's just like, I already talked about it enough. It's just, it's just fun. And then number two is probably gonna be the, I don't really know if I should rank them. Like, I love all these movies the same. Um, so The Legend of Barantoa, I loved that one. Again, it does such a good job exploring Tongan, Pacific Islander, New Zealand culture. And again, it does like an amazing job, like tying in wrestling history and wrestling culture. And all the characters and actors in it are just like brilliant. And then uh, I also obviously love You Cannot Kill David Arquette. It's his redemption arc of like trying to like right the wrongs he did in his WCW storyline is just so, so well done. And the fact that he just like gives like a no holds barred look at like every single aspect of his life as he's going through the independent wrestling circuit, I think that's really special. And I think it's good because David Arquette is obviously a more mainstream person. And if people who like aren't interested in wrestling watch this because of David Arquette, I think that's good for like the wrestling world as a whole is because maybe more people understand that wrestling is more than just like fake fights. It's not fake, it's scripted. And I think more people will like realize how much hard work and passion and dedication that these men and women put into the sport. So I really want to like thank David Arquette for doing that. And then for us, for Fantasia as a whole, uh, I really enjoyed this festival. I hadn't heard about it before this year, but I'm looking forward to checking out like the, the further additions because Ottawa isn't too far from Montreal and hopefully I can check it out in person next year. Well, that is it for this week's special episode of Clappercast. We are going to return for a part two regarding the interviews we've conducted with the likes of uh, Ashley Robson and Diego. It should be a really good episode to look forward to, but where can we find everyone on social media? Alina? I'm at Alina Folds on Twitter, and then same on Letterboxd. Carson? You can find me on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews or on Letterboxd just under the name Carson Tamar. And Diego? 
You can find me on both Twitter and Letterboxd at the Diego Andaluz, and that's A N D A L U Z. You can find me both on Letterboxd and Twitter talking about shit, uh, the username at Jalukshav. And you can find all the latest releases at Film and Television Reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social links on Clapper at Facebook and at Clapper LTD on Twitter and at Letterboxd, make, uh, run by our wonderful Alina here. Um, make sure to rate, subscribe or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. And thank you all for listening. We're back next week to discuss all things cinema.